If you've taken a walk around campus in the past few months, you've likely noticed all the banners that, in chunky block lettering, read, Made by McGill. The banners are part of an ad campaign that you've also likely seen on Instagram or YouTube, a high-energy montage of McGill students and faculty looking into microscopes or fiddling with robotics. It's a way to recruit new members to our school community by showing them what's possible here. So the message of the video and of all the banners seems simple, but it's actually kind of puzzling. All these cool scientists and dealmakers, it asserts, were made by McGill. They were formed by this place, united by their ties to its grounds. But it prompts one to ask, what is McGill itself made of? What makes us different, critical, proud of this place? There's a page on the official McGill website about this, literally one called What Makes a McGillian, and they basically suggest that it's just a feedback loop, where the overachievers from the posters who were ostensibly made by McGill are also the thing that makes it. But I wonder if there's something more here, something in our collective school character that we could tease out if we asked each other or asked ourselves. That exercise in navel-gazing is the focus of our Maiden episode. Over the course of the podcast today, we'll hear three stories, stories from the Bull and Bear's own staff writers, about what actually makes McGill, both the good and the bad. So, from the basement of the Bronfman Building... In the very first episode of This McGillian Life, I'm Sarah Farb. Stay tuned. Our first story today comes from our opinion section, and I think it speaks to a much more immediate, kind of funny aspect of what makes McGill McGill. It's the existence on campus of people, both professors and students, who need to prove that they're smart. And what do smart people do to assert their intellectual prowess? They use big words. And then they publish them. And then we have to slog through the readings of them and pretend we understand them. And then the cycle just restarts. So here's Marissa Kires reading her piece from last semester, The Vexing Nuance Associated with Obfuscated Prose, or the problem with overly complex writing. I clench my jaw as I attempt to complete my readings for my political science course in preparation for the final exam. I reread the sentence for a second time, then a third, and a fourth. It's only by the fifth read-through that I begin to understand the meaning of the 67-word sentence, complete with three semicolons and four seemingly made-up words. This paper defies all of the rules of grammar and punctuation that I have been learning since fourth-grade English class. It seems the author has forgotten how to use periods, opting to use semicolons, dashes, and commas instead. They use only words of three syllables or more, replacing use with utilize, teach with indoctrinate, think with cogitate, not to mention the highly technical terminology used, short of explanation or context. I can't help but wonder if the author's writing style is implemented as an attempt to show off their superior intelligence and academic prowess. However, excessively complicated language is not exclusive to academics and the experts of disciplines. Reading essays written by my friends and peers, I realize that writing riddled with unnecessary jargon has become standard practice among both seasoned academics and clueless undergraduate students. So why does academic writing use needlessly complex language and meaningless jargon? 
Firstly, it's unlikely that the intended audience of these academic papers are undergraduate students from varying disciplines. Most probably, the author intended that his works be read exclusively by his colleagues who are familiar with the discipline's specific lingo and complex syntax. Secondly, researchers tend to inflate their writing with professional jargon in an attempt to sound more intellectual and elegant. Academics are pressured to mimic particular stylistic conventions and use similar terminology in order to be taken seriously by their peers and academic journal editors, as well as department chairs and academic committees. Nonetheless, these papers are still incomprehensible to most. Deborah S. Bosley, a university professor with a doctorate in rhetoric and writing, notes that academic language is often cluttered with so much jargon and unexplained technical terminology that only those with a PhD in the same discipline can understand their peers' works. Academics tend to use complicated syntax despite being able to explain the concepts through simple language. This is problematic because convoluted writing only further obscures the meaning of concepts that are already fairly confusing. Academic prose is often so difficult to follow that readers must spend a considerable amount of time and effort to decipher the meaning of texts. While students can and often do spend time simplifying academic writing and rewording it in a coherent manner in bullet form notes, unpacking all of the jargon bogs down a student's learning speed. Moreover, by not maximizing the comprehension of their work, researchers reinforce the elitism and exclusivity of academia. Some authors use complex writing as an attempt to exclude the general public from reading academic works and engaging in discourse, since maintaining the privative status of academia in the eyes of the public makes it easier to justify higher salaries. In the process, the use of unnecessary jargon, acronyms, and idioms excludes those of lower class backgrounds and those for whom their first language is not English. If the primary purpose of academic prose is to reach and inform audiences, writers should acknowledge how obscure and convoluted language confuses and discourages readers. Since simplified academic writing would more effectively achieve the researcher's goal of extending the scope of audience, a greater and more explicit effort should be made to simplify their writing. Pedantic writing is enticing because it's an easy way of making the content of a paper seem more complex and prestigious. Even still, it's important to stop conflating complex writing with complex ideas. Breaking down complicated ideas into simple and concise language can actually be more difficult. I find myself falling into the jargon pit only when I'm trying to grapple with concepts that I don't truly understand. Writing simplistically requires that one firmly grasps the concepts being espoused and have an adequate understanding of the meaning behind relevant terms. So no, you're not slow because you have trouble understanding the 60-page paper your professor assigned in Poly 362. And no, you don't sound like a genius when you say words like dialectical and veracity. As for the papers we students produce, do your professors a favor this coming exam season and tuck away your thesaurus. We should refrain from using needlessly complex language to sound more intellectual because this could be at the expense of making sentences incomprehensible for readers and even our graders. As the next generation of professors and scholars, it is our responsibility to make academic writing more accessible to students like us and to the greater population by writing clearly and concisely, not in obfuscated, floral, indecipherable vernaculars. While the big words are happening inside the campus buildings, another part of how we might define McGill has to do with the buildings themselves and the pathways and the roads and then the buildings again. 
Because if there's one thing that everyone associates with day-to-day reality in Montreal, it's the incessant, almost nonsensical amounts of construction. To examine the how and the why of all of this building, including the corruption that might be embedded in the system, here's Zabi Assam reading his piece, Behind the Orange Traffic Cones, from our print issue. A commute through Montreal is never complete without seeing one of those bright orange traffic cones. Closed sidewalks, blocked roads, crumbling potholes, and loud drilling are just some of the inconveniences due to seemingly never-ending construction projects throughout the city. Not only are these projects poorly planned, underemployed, and underfunded, but behind-the-scenes contract rigging has made annoyance from citywide construction even more widespread. Rush hour is inevitable where there is construction. Shift times seem to change at the same time as traffic begins to build up, requiring police and construction workers to direct discontinuous traffic flow through congested lanes. These standstills lead to decreased productivity and lateness, yet when there is low traffic at night, many construction crews are not working as the industry is at full capacity, according to the Association of Construction in Quebec, ACQ, and does not have enough workers to cover shifts. The ACQ projects that roughly 20,000 more workers are needed to meet project demand over the next decade. Yet as project demand continues to increase, so does Quebec's infrastructure budget deficit, having increased from $11.8 billion in 2015 to $16.4 billion today. Large projects are getting their required funding, but they are tightening budget constraints for small and maintenance projects, decreasing workforce size and efficiency, and lengthening required deadlines. How contracts are chosen to be funded, however, has been exposed as an unfair process in Montreal. This September, a $26 million lawsuit was filed against Frank Zampino, the former second-in-command at Montreal City Hall and construction tycoon Tony Accurso. Documents indicate that Zampino would reward Accurso and his businesses with city construction contracts in exchange for political and other favors. These contracts were rigged to increase bid prices, providing major profits for Accurso's companies, and then would be delayed or canceled, creating advantages for individuals at the expense of Montreal citizens. Zampino has also been sued in other city-based cases, such as a $14 million suit for a canceled water meter contract. Engineering consulting firms were also accused of being involved in the collusion and contract rigging scandal. A judge has currently stayed proceedings against Zampino for potentially illegal wiretap recordings used against him as evidence. Yet the Crown is looking to appeal this decision and proceed further with the trial. The Charbonneau Commission, a public inquiry into the awarding process for construction contracts in Quebec, has claimed that allegedly corrupt firms have since been flushed from the system and that the province now needs to effectively plan how to proceed with new and upcoming projects. A promising development in Montreal is the planned construction of Montreal's largest luxury condo tower and complex, Maestria, The environmentally responsible project will feature two towers of approximately 60 stories each, connected with a sky bridge and overlooking the Courtier de Spectacle. In addition, there will be restaurants and retail spaces open to the entire Montreal community. As the housing market in Montreal continues to boom, perhaps this stunning project can lead the way to the fair and thoroughly planned construction in the future. There are parts of McGill that you can see, like wordy readings or traffic cones, And then there are the parts that you can't see, but that all of us feel. There's a private dimension to McGill that has to do with the way it can sometimes make you feel like you're your own island, searching for a name and a flag. Thrown into this place after high school, without coddling and praise, 
This school inspires a kind of fierce individualism, which can be great for helping you foster an authentic identity, but it can also get lonely. Sarah Manuzak's piece this week analyzes that dynamic through an interesting paradigm, the Netflix animated series BoJack Horseman. I'll let her take it from here. That's too much, man. BoJack Horseman, Sarah Lynn, and university students. As Netflix's smash hit BoJack Horseman comes to a close with the impending release of its final season, fans everywhere are mourning the loss of the extremely relatable series. BoJack Horseman provides a seamless conglomeration of animation and dark humor with surprisingly deep overarching plot lines. As a university student, I can relate to the enigmatic child star Sarah Lynn. One of BoJack's co-stars on his 80s sitcom Horsin' Around, Sarah Lynn played BoJack's youngest adoptive daughter, Sabrina. Sarah Lynn was raised by the show's titular character, an alcoholic, narcissistic horse with little regard for anyone but himself. In the second episode of the show, viewers see how both BoJack and childhood stardom affected Sarah Lynn. In the typical trajectory of a child actor, she turned to promiscuous behavior, drug abuse, and pitiable isolation. Clearly, every university student isn't doomed to fall prey to this exact behavior, but the message is clear. Teens often behave in risky ways to fill an emptiness inside them. I instantly connected Sarah Lynn's experiences with those of my peers upon arrival at university. When all you've been is praised as an exceptional young talent, it's hard to adjust to a life with no expectations and no limits. Sarah Lynn represents the side of immaturity that masquerades as blissful ignorance. For many university students, experimenting with drugs is simply par for the course. Young bodies are strong and young minds are weak, and university is meant for making the stupid decisions your parents can no longer shield you from. The hardest part of university is channeling all this wily experimentation into the creation of a more distilled version of yourself. Bojack Horseman imbues upon its viewers the message that sometimes you have to confront the person you're becoming, especially when who you're becoming isn't someone you want to be. It gets hard being a rebel. For Sarah Lynn, as for many university students, the individual becomes lost in the identity, the illusionary fake persona to which one feels forcibly conjoined. A young Sarah Lynn constantly talked about her aspirations to be an architect and the show brought her arc to a heartbreaking conclusion, as the 31-year-old eventually died of a heroin overdose, her last words being, I want to be an architect. She got so caught up in maintaining a relevant and praiseworthy image that she blew out her own flame before its time. It's difficult not to see yourself as a supporting character in someone else's story. To her mother, her agent, and her on-screen father, Bojack, Sarah Lynn was a plaything. She was pushed into homeschooling and then the spotlight and remained utterly alone. Until her death, Sarah Lynn did not get the chance to live her own life. I see this all too often in high-functioning teens, especially ones at a school as stress-inducing as McGill. From a very young age, children with talent are treated as prodigies and become terrified of ever failing. As time goes on and it gets harder to stay exceptional, Post-impressive children are willing to lose their sense of self to keep their sense of superiority. It's not a matter of staying true to oneself. There was never a self to maintain. When parents try too hard to create a truly excellent child, all the child is comfortable identifying with is perfection. 
As Sarah Lynn says to Bojack, I feel like I'm at a point in my life where I don't need to grow as a person and can constantly surround myself with sycophants and enablers until I die tragically young. When your only passion becomes impressing others, you lose any real individual pursuits or desires. Many teenagers see themselves as extensions of their parents and live just to please them. The tragedy of university lies in those that are unable to take advantage of the individuality afforded to them. Being a talented child is not a one-way ticket to being a depressed adult. One of the most beautiful parts of university is the chance to find out who you really are. Drop a class, join a club, just do something because you want to do it. You are the main character in your story, and your story is just beginning. So, over the course of the episode, we've heard about McGill in the classroom, outside of it, and the kind of hyper-pressurized McGill that exists in our own heads sometimes. We didn't talk about microscopes or robots or any of the other stuff you'll see on those Made by McGill posters. And I think that that's because what really makes McGill is that it's never fully made. It, like all of us who fill it, are always in the process of making. Students are in the process of getting a degree, our campus is always improving itself, even if that means our enigma of a city is navigating some nefarious activities in the process. Our adult lives and identities are only half-formed. And once it all comes together, once you've written your last exam or printed out your last jargon-filled paper, you leave. The construction workers pack up and the Y intersection reopens, only to be torn up again a couple years later. You are made, and so the only thing left to do is make room for the half-formed kids behind you. That's our show for today. Thanks to the three staff writers who read their pieces and to Cindy Shee on audio. Until next time, take care.